Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph and GP of Flex Capital. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Elad Gill. Elad has invested in companies including Airbnb, Coinbase, Pinterest, Stripe, Gusto, Rippling, Deal, Instacart, and Square, mostly at the very early stages. The company he found in Color Health is worth over $4 billion. And he's also the author of the best-selling book, High Growth Handbook, which I highly recommend. I loved. Elad, welcome to World of DAS. Thanks so much for including me today. I'm really excited to dive in. Now, you've invested in a ton of super successful companies early on. Is there any non-obvious traits that they share? There may be two, and I think they probably sound obvious, but maybe they're not obvious to some people. I think the first one is that one of the pieces of conventional wisdom in Silicon Valley is that you have to grind for years and years and years before something works. And most of the things that I've been involved with that have become very successful started working almost right away, pretty quickly after launch. It just got the product market fit and it just worked. Yeah, it just starts working and it just starts scaling. And there's obvious counterexamples of that where people pivoted or changed what they're doing or edited things down. But the reality is most things, once a product was generally available, they just started ramping. And it could be that they ramped users without having payment or anything like that. Or it could be they wandered for a little bit and then restarted. But then the second thing that they restarted on, it worked, it really worked. I think that's one thing. And then I think the second thing is startups are almost definitionally an exercise in working on what's non-obvious. Because if it was obvious, everybody would be doing it and there'd be no startup opportunity. It's this interesting mix of doing something that's a little bit non-obvious and at the same time, just having it work really fast. What do you think the mistakes that maybe you've seen other angel investors make? I've made a ton of mistakes myself. So I don't know whether I'm the best source for things to avoid, but each person has to find their own style or approach to investing. And people will give generic advice on this is how you should do things or how you should approach things. And it may work really well for the person giving the advice, but really poorly for everybody else. So I'll give you an example. My style of investing is very product market centric. I think founders are incredibly important. I've started two companies myself, but fundamentally I view everything through the lens of product market fit. And is there a clear market pull? And do people really want this thing that you're building? Other people index on team and they do great as investors. I have one friend who's a very successful investor. And he basically asked the question of, do I think this is a really strong technical team? If so, I'll invest. Or do I think it's a really interesting problem? And if so, he'll invest. So his approach is very different from mine, but he's a very successful investor. So I just feel you have to find the style or approach that works for you versus a generic thing that works for everybody. Yeah, if I think of me personally, I'm a fairly prolific angel investor, but I think you've been at least five times probably more successful than I have in angel investing. What do you think even experienced angels can learn from your experience? I'm not sure is the honest answer. One of it is, again, this focus on product market fit and can you validate that the thing is actually needed by users? And some people do that and some people don't. So the people who do that, they probably don't have much to learn from that. The second thing that a lot of angels don't do that I think you do, but I know a lot of angels don't, is double down on the things that are working. So keep investing along the way, assuming you're still helpful to the company. And investing in Stripe at $500 million is still a great investment. Too many people stop just after the seed because, oh, the seed's over and I'm done. The flip side of it is a place where I've seen people go really wrong on that is the way that you think about an early stage company is very different from a late stage company. Early stage is, is there some inkling that I think this could turn into something that people will want and are there good founders? Later stages is often just looking at metrics. You're saying, what is a TAM? How defensible is this? How well is it growing? What's the LTV CAC? Just what are the core things that suggest that this thing will really work? Where 
early stage investors go bad on the later sides if they decide to participate is they view it the same way they view an early stage investment. And there's, do I like the team? And you know, nothing's changed on the team. So you probably still like the team, but it may be a terrible business. Or high priced or something at that point. Interesting. On your first point, Peter Thiel always says the investment that he wished he made that he didn't make was investing more at Facebook at 100 million pre. He did the 10 million deal. And then when Excel came in, he ratcheted it back. That's where he could have made a lot more money if he had doubled down at that point. Absolutely. And I think that's one thing that people forget. And the other thing is, one could argue on a risk reward basis, it may be better. It's actually less risky as you get more and more information. And maybe your return is capped a bit more, but you could also potentially invest more money at the same time. So you may also get a better overall dollar basis returns. That's worth thinking through as well. Do you think now that we're moving into, a, let's say, a slightly different environment than we've had in the last 15 years where we're having higher interest rates, how does that affect what we should be looking at when we're investing? We had this really interesting run where for almost 20 years, tech was only up and to the right. And the great financial crisis, I don't think, was really something that impacted technology companies very much, particularly startups. I was actually running a company at the time as founder and CEO of a company called Mixer Labs, a Sequoia-backed. And I was at that famous Sequoia, rest in peace, good times presentation in 2000. I don't remember, it was 2008 or something. And the great financial crisis was happening. Everybody buttoned down. It's going to be a rough ride. And then it was a nothing for most technology companies. We've had 20 years of good times. It's more thinking through the lens of there's a lot of excess that comes when things are working too well. And you saw that excess in terms of fundraises. You saw that excess in terms of employee behavior. Everything was very tight because everything kept working, particularly over the last few years because of COVID. We did really odd things in terms of printing money and airdropping it and creating inflation and all these things and then counteracting that. And so that led to extreme bubble behavior. And now we're living through the aftermath of that. And effectively, we have this cohort of companies that should have probably gone under or sold that kept going over the last four or five years. And so we have a giant backlog of stuff that just needs to be cleared out because it used to be that you'd invest in 10 companies, five to seven of them wouldn't work. And then suddenly we went from that to everything working for a prolonged period of time because people could keep raising money and keep going. And I feel we're just kind of resetting back to 2017 or something. I actually don't think we've hit really bad times quite yet. I think next year will be much worse than this year. But that means fundraisers get a little bit longer the average founder has gotten much stronger and more driven and less status driven and more driven on wanting to build something useful. There's been all sorts of shifts that are probably positive shifts in terms of that next wave of great companies being created. But I still think there's a lot of backlog on the excess of the last few years that will have to get cleaned out. That's coming over the next 12 to 24 months. You've written a couple of pieces on layoffs. You have this piece where almost all layoffs are between 10 and 15%. Usually they're 13%. Because yeah, well, you have to do at least 10, but 15 just seems like too much to do. In some ways, would you love to see deeper cuts or multiple? Or how do you think about it when you're thinking about these companies that need to be a little bit more right-sized? It obviously varies a lot. Some companies shouldn't cut right now. They should just be growing. Honestly, the companies that I know of that type still are doing 10% through performance because they hired less well over the last couple of years. It's just maybe a more humane way of cleaning it out a bit. Yeah, and I wouldn't do it as a layoff. I would just do performance reviews and, just, and then they keep growing. Some companies will just grow through this environment and they should. Some companies really should maybe cut 10, 15%, although that's not very material. And then many, many companies should cut dramatically deeper. 
And in general, it's better to overcut and then rehire, particularly in this very good hiring environment, than to undercut and then do sequential rounds of layoffs. Because when you start doing sequential rounds of layoffs, that's when you start losing the belief of the employee base that you're actually done and that things are stable. Founders are almost, I don't know what to call it, feral animals or something. (laughs) They thrive on uncertainty and ambiguity, and they're fine with things being unstable and risky and all this stuff. But the average person you hire into a company wants stability and they want certainty and they want to know what's coming. And that's true whether times are good or times are bad. I've had some conversations with founders where they've said, well, we're going to lay off 20%. Why is it 20%? Let's run through your plan. And then it turns out they should really lay off 50%. And there's a few conversations where I've talked to people about that. And they said, well, we think laying off 50% will be too shocking to our employees. So we're only going to lay off 20%. And all they're doing in that case is kicking the ball down the road. And when they do a second layoff of 30%, people will be way more upset than if they just hit it all at once, they were stable and moved ahead. And so I do think people are making mistakes by worrying a little bit too much about employee perception versus saying, no matter what, people aren't going to like this. It's going to be a tough hit, but we can just do it once and move on versus we're going to do it multiple times. And I went through this experience myself. It does seem when you have a hundred people or so, that's doable because you can quickly understand who all those people are and what those people are doing and who's the most important people in the role, et cetera. When you're 10,000 people, some of these bigger tech companies are, you may have no choice, I think, to do maybe multiple rounds of layoffs because it may be very, very hard. You don't necessarily trust that middle manager to give the assessment of their people. So it might be more difficult to do it right up front. I don't know. I think you can definitely identify the highest performers. That's true. And you do whatever you can to keep them. And you can definitely identify the lowest performers. Let's say top 15% and bottom 15. That's pretty clear. So then the question is, what do you do in the middle? And the potentially cynical view is maybe it doesn't matter that much. It matters. On the margin, there'll be better people and worse people and people who work harder and people who work less hard. But you should have enough trust in your managers to think they get it 80 or 90% right. It's really unfortunate if they don't get it 100% right, but at the same time, it's very detrimental for everybody if it takes a really long time, both from an uncertainty perspective, from the perspective of good people quitting because they don't know if they'll have a job, from the perspective of how you think about severance and can you give longer severance because you're doing it sooner. I could argue it's better for roughly everybody to do it faster than to overly worry about out of the 2,000 people I'm going to let go, did I get that one person right? versus the other 1,999. And it's really unfortunate if you get it wrong, but the flip side of it is, as a company, you have to just move ahead sometimes, and it's rough. These are not easy things. And I went through this experience myself where I joined a company in 2001, and it went from 120 people to 150, and then it shrank to 15 people over five rounds of layoffs, and I got laid off in the third round. And every time they do a layoff, I pull my friend into the office, and I draw a chart and be like, we have to do another layoff. It's clear. Why didn't they cut deeper? And so eventually I got cut. So I've been through this myself and it sucked. It was awful. So I'm not saying that you shouldn't be humane about it. It would have been better if they just cut you right away. It's usually clear to the employees because they do basic math. It's not like hard math. You're just adding up how much you're burning and how much you're making and you extrapolate. Well, we're not going to make it. You have a certain amount of money in the bank. You'll have a sense of how many months you have unburned. And in this environment, it's going to be hard to raise. So... And in this environment, the later you get laid off, the harder it'll be to find a job in tech because more and more companies will be doing subsequent rounds or they'll start tightening their belts. Or as people do layoffs, they cut their SaaS spend. And so the downstream SaaS part vendors start to lose business and their NRR shrink. 
So it all cascades. Companies who jumped on this early, let's say Q2 of 2022, that was when we first started to see those rounds. Most of those employees have been able to get new jobs and stuff. Whereas once you get to Q4, Q1, Q2 of 2023, it's more difficult because a lot of the good jobs have already been taken. There's been a lot of hiring freezes, et cetera. Yeah, next year is going to be worse, in my opinion. 2024, you think will be worse. And that's just because of this overhang that you said, or why do you think 2024 will be worse? I think it's for two reasons. I think the big reason is most companies that fundraised in 2021 raised three to four years of cash, roughly. If you extrapolate out that time horizon, you say, okay, that means they ran out of money in 2024, 2025. And if you need six to nine months to fundraise, then you just slide that window back by six months in terms of when a lot of companies will be going out to fundraise. And as they start running out of money, you'll start to see shutdowns and more layoffs and all these things happening. I think 2024 and maybe even part of 2025, we'll just continue to see this slide for a lot of the mid to late stage companies in the ecosystem. Early stage companies, it doesn't matter. It won't impact them. Maybe it'll just make hiring easier. And then I guess the main way it'll impact them from a fundraising perspective is evaluations will keep coming down, but B, the investor community will be very distracted dealing with companies that aren't working very well and helping them. And so they may just not have the same bandwidth to invest in new things. Now, you've been popularized as kind of dual threat CEO, solo GP type of person, which is starting to get a little bit more popular. And these investors who are current founders, current operators, in some ways they can help their companies more than traditional investors. That is starting to eat more market share from the more traditional VCs. Do you see that continuing over time? Or do you think we've reached peak solo GP? Or how do you think that plays out? There's two different concepts in there. One is operator angels. And I think you got to that before I did. You were doing that 15, 20 years ago, if I remember correctly. I remember you funding a lot of my friends back in the day. You and others pioneered a lot of that stuff. I guess you could argue that it even goes back to the very early days of Silicon Valley. If you read the history of the semiconductor industries in the 70s, all these people are angel investing in each other. It's a very old concept. That was a lot of the operator angels 15 years ago writing maybe 100K checks max. Even if you think of the early checks in Google, 25 to 100K max, whereas now there are people who can write multi-million dollar checks behind it. Yeah, that's fair. And you definitely see a lot of operators with side funds now of varying scales. In some cases, they're on the scale of tens of millions of dollars. I never did that while I was operating, although I did some SPVs in part because capital just wasn't that available. It was harder to do that. And that's shifted now. But secondly, I just worried about getting too distracted. There's people who can balance both. I just wanted to figure out the right trade-off relative because the bigger the check you write, the more time founders assume that you're going to give. So I think you have to be very explicit if you're doing that, that, hey, I actually won't have that much time for you, but I'd like to write a bigger check. It's really valuable for founders to get funded by people who are running things simply because they have such great insights in terms of what's actually happening in the ecosystem. They may have more recent ideas on hires that people can bring on. They may have customer relationships that they can help leverage over. So And for them, it's often intelligence into what's happening. And just the cadence of business changes so much every year that maybe the very big things don't change, but all the medium things change quite a bit. That's fair. I think distribution channel shift, or how do you do distribution? What are great pools of people to hire out of changes? Who are the early adopter customer changes, depending on the industry? So I do think there's knowledge that comes with continuing to operate. And then obviously, to your point, there's more universal knowledge that you either glean through 
years of operating and managing people, still managing people, <laughs> or it's stuff is gleaned by working with many companies and then seeing what's happening across a pool of things. Do you expect that the market share of these both operator angels and the solo GPs will go up significantly over time or vis-a-vis, let's say, some of more of the traditional VCs? The honest answer is I don't know. I think that there's two countervailing things that tend to happen. On the one hand, if you look at many venture firms, not all but many, there's one or two people who really drive a lot of the best investments and that founders really want to work with. And some firms have more than that, and some firms have nobody. Often, it's a few singular people. And to some extent, one could argue a subset of the solo GPs are basically people who would have been those singular people at one of these firms, and they decided to go out on their own. Now, some of those people may end up going and building firms, which is a normal cycle. And some of those people may go and join firms or start companies or do other things. And then a very small number will keep going in the solo GP side. And then maybe there's new people who come up and cycle through. I do think all these things are going to be evolutionary in nature. I'm guessing the landscape five years from now probably doesn't look that different from the landscape today. I don't think there will suddenly be a hundred new solo GPs driving a lot of stuff or something, but I could be wrong. You popularize the concept of founder market fit. What are some examples of really good founder market fit? That concept may have come from Chris Dixon. I could be wrong. So I think actually he's the one who came up with it. And There are examples of that where somebody has just been working on the same thing over and over and over again at different companies, and then they decided to build it for everyone else. PagerDuty started that way where it was built internally, I think, for Amazon or somebody, and then they just said, okay, we should just build this for everyone. And they already knew how to build it, and they were customers themselves. Maybe early Stripe is a good example of that. They built the payment system that they really wanted for themselves as founders and as developers. There's examples like that where people are just tuned to what they're going to do. And then, of course, there's always a story of the person who grew up in a family that was doing real estate, so they decided to do real estate tech, or they were buying houses themselves. And so Eric Wu from Opendoor was like that. I think he was already involved with a bunch of real estate stuff, and he'd done Movity before. Yeah, Ryan from Flexport, he was just this crazy logistics nerd. Now, when David Sachs was on this World of Desk podcast, he mentioned that he thought growth is currently too expensive and essentially companies should prioritize survival over growth. How do you think about that trade-off? I feel the only good generic startup advice is that there's no good generic startup advice. (laughs) And there's trends, sets of things that you should do and all the rest. There are certain companies that should just keep growing as long as they can keep within a certain burn multiple. Because now may be the time for them to go for share. And as long as they can keep either raising money or they turn profitable enough, they can keep going. If you can win a market, you should win a market. But the real question is, will you be able to keep going if you take a more aggressive stance? The flip side of it is most companies, or at least many companies, were over-indexing on growth and they were burning $5 for every dollar of revenue, $10 for every dollar of revenue. If you're a five-person early-stage startup, that's normal. If you're a 150-person Series C company, that's a really bad place to be. And so I think it kind of depends on your context. Most companies, though, I think really overhired and really overburnt. And so you'd have companies with $2 million in revenue raising $100 million at a billion and hiring 150 people. And then when they do their layoff, they lay off to 13% or whatever. And then they're down to 135 people or whatever it is, 130 people. And they really should be down 15 people. And that's where I think the big mistakes are being made right now. Once you get, let's say, about 5 million ARR or something like that, 
the simple way of knowing if a business is a good business is that the CACs decrease over time. If the CACs start to go down over time, you know there's something goodness about this business. But so many businesses, CACs are flat. In many cases, some of these enterprise SaaS companies, CACs go up over time. It's harder to justify a bigger and bigger investments. I'd view it as CAC LTV. If your ASP or something else keeps going up too, faster than great. I think in general, you tend to saturate channels. I actually sometimes think about things as effective TAM or total addressable market. People often talk about your total addressable market and they come up with all sorts of crazy numbers for it. And I view it as effective TAM, which in my mind basically means what is a subset of the TAM that you can actually reach? And that's often a view of how fast are you growing and how broad is a set of customers that you're reaching? And often the velocity of growth is almost reflective of the size of your TAM. In other words, if you keep growing really fast, it actually means you may be in a bigger TAM than you think. And if your growth really starts to slow down, it may be a product issue, it may be a channel issue, it may just be that your TAM isn't there. You just don't have enough customers to maintain enough liquidity and growth fast enough. One of the big shifts that's happened over the last decade is we went from a situation where it used to be that you'd show up with 100K of ARR growing 15% a month or 20% a month, and you knew that there was product market fit. Wow, this thing is actually working. And it was harder to reach people on the internet. Now there's so much liquidity and there's so many people online that you can find 100K of ARR for almost any type of thing. It's more misleading because you don't know how quickly that will tap out because the liquidity to reach customers is so much faster. And that means that you can get more traction early and then just completely flatline. There's also certain businesses that just by the dint of what that business is, should have a much higher market share. Whereas a lot of these traditional SaaS companies the leader might get 20% market share, and number two is 15, and number three is 10 or something like that. But there are these businesses where the leader has 60, 70% market share because there's some sort of network effect going there. So even in a smaller TAM, per se, you could get an outsized return. To some extent, again, that could be an argument of effective market size. If you can really saturate something to 80%, 80% of a small market may sound better than 10% of a big market, but it goes both ways. There are other circumstances where if I had 5% of global whatever, that's actually huge global travel spend or whatever it is. If you do have 80% of a market, your CACs are going to be really low because by default, probably most people are just going to go with you at that point. There are also some markets where once you hit a certain amount of market share, there's an elbow and you accelerate. There are certain consumer markets where you cross at 10% or something of market share, and then suddenly you'll grow faster because of either a network effect or word of mouth or some other aspect of it. And I think that's sometimes under-discussed as well, that there are sometimes these scale effects where suddenly things really kick in and you're actually going to accelerate your growth for a period of time. Because brand is really important and it's very hard to build. For instance, if I'm going to do something in telephony, I'm just going to use Twilio. If I'm going to do something in credit card payments, I'm just going to use Stripe. I don't even know if they're better or not, but their brand is so compelling that I'm going to go to them first before I go anywhere else. If you were to release an updated edition of the High Growth Handbook, what do you think you would change? I'm working on two things right now related to it. One is I'm working on a go-to-market and sales addendum that may then get integrated into the main book. And then I'm working on an early stage book. What are all the zero to one things that you do? And very tactical advice on just the early stages of starting a company. The original outline for the High Growth Handbook was three times longer than the actual book itself in terms of the areas I wanted to cover. There's all the stuff that isn't covered on like HR and finance and a bunch of other stuff, including sales and go-to-market. I'd probably add a pandemic response section 
facts that predated COVID. The other thing that isn't really touched upon, and I was going to put it in and then I didn't, was what do you do in hard times? How do you do a layoff for the first time and how do you communicate it and how do you figure out what to do there? Or how do you think about burn relative to things like burn multiples? It's light on those areas that I would... That might be in the low growth handbook too. Well, I think it's also almost every company that's really made it has had a few existential crises along the way or some big thing happen. Most companies don't just grow indefinitely. They have some periods where Facebook had saturated colleges and flatlined, and then they did the platform and it grew for a period and then flatlined. And, you know, they went through these waves, right? Often you have these moments where everything slow down. What do we do next? And some companies really figure it out and some don't. In general, one key thing I've learned over time is that companies that innovate early tend to keep innovating and companies that innovate late never innovate again. eBay never really came up with an act two. And there's a bunch of other companies like that that are more modern examples. And the flip side of it is Stripe has come out with a dozen products. I think that people who end up launching products reasonably early in the life of a company keep launching products and the ones that don't just forever have their initial product. Is there a sense where it's also related to whether it's founder-driven or not? Founder-driven companies in general tend to have more capacity to innovate over time, but I don't think it's necessarily one-to-one. I see companies that have done well And a subset have kept innovating and a subset haven't. In all cases, they've been founder-led the whole time. I don't think it's necessarily one-to-one. The other thing that happens with CEO transitions, where people, I think, often make mistakes, is the founder CEO will often have the person who complements them well as the next CEO. I'm the scattered person coming up with great product ideas, and there's this person who runs the ships very well. So that person becomes the next CEO, and then you just don't innovate for the next decade. It's usually the case where they're the yin to the founder's yang, and they're really good at the things that the founder isn't good at. But the reason why the company is so good is because it's got that founder personality. And if the founder leaves, they should probably go down to the sixth most senior person in the company and not the number two person. And the reason that they don't is because that number two person is going to leave. Obviously, that number two person is so essential. I think it's okay if that person leaves. If they're really good at what they do, they should have somebody backing them up. Usually those people are actually very good at hiring leverage beneath them. And that's the reason they're considered so good. As CEO, if you've built something really big, you want to find somebody like you to take over, not somebody who's complimentary to you if you want to keep innovating. Now, if you're stuck in a regulatory morass and you need somebody to go in front of Congress all the time and all the rest of it, maybe it's a little bit different because somebody who likes innovating may just not like that type of job. But the reality is you always end up with the, I'm going to run the ship's person, and then they never build something new or interesting again. And then you get stuck, and then things fall off a cliff, and then you scramble for the person who's innovative. It's the same cycle every single time. And often you have a decade where you can just coast on the past product roadmaps and the momentum of the core business, and then you hit a wall. That's a lesson that doesn't really get applied. If you're a founder CEO, hire another founder type to run the company after you, not the ops person. You've also written a lot about organization structure and operational efficiency. What are some of the best innovations you've seen in HR and organizational structures? Most of the attempts to innovate there don't turn out very well. Keeping things lean makes a lot of sense. The holacracy stuff. Holacracy always is just awful. Um, But keeping things lean always makes sense. And trying to minimize layers always makes sense. And under hiring versus over hiring. There's a few things that I think just kind of tend to work. Having a DRI or directly responsible individual for certain areas tends to make sense. You see these CEOs tell these stories of how their company is run completely different. And it's either because it fits them very well, which makes sense. 
to some extent, as CEO, you need to design the organization that works for you, not the organization that would work generically for everyone. So the organization should fit the CEO, not the other way around. Sometimes these things turn out to be overstated. We never have meetings and I just run it for blah, blah, blah. And then you talk to an exec, oh yeah, we have meetings every Monday for three hours. Some of these things are also almost market positioning to sound innovative and cool and we're not a big company and blah, blah, blah. And then they get in and you're like, well, they actually really run it the same roughly within the ballpark of some constraints. But again, I think people should design the thing that works well for them versus the thing that's generically supposed to work. One of your passions is investing around life extension. For you personally, outside of like sleep and diet, what do you think people should be doing? Or what what are you doing that's interesting? I am doing nothing interesting, honestly. I've tended to take a very conservative approach to all this stuff. Sleep, it's diet, it's exercise. There's some basic things that just make sense to do. Just the basic stuff that everyone says to do. Those tend to seem to correlate with at least health span. There are people that I know in the anti-aging community, and they tend to take a baby aspirin. Some of them take a certain subset of types of statins, which tend to help with obviously cardiovascular disease, but in some cases, inflammation and potentially, I think, some neuro stuff. And then the more experimental people maybe take some metformin or something where the effect size is small, but it looks real. But in general, I don't do anything radical, and I'm kind of waiting for a real generation of anti-aging drugs to come out. What are you excited about? What do you think could happen in the next 15 years? There's sort of what could versus what likely will. Part of that is regulatory. Part of that is a number of companies being founded in the area. Part of that is just structural issues in biopharma. Let me ask you this. When was the last time that a 40 or $50 billion plus biotech or pharmaceutical company was started outside of Moderna, which I view as almost like an accident of COVID? It's a good question. I don't know. The last time I looked, it was the late 80s. It was Regeneron. I don't remember when Vertex was started, but I think Vertex got there now too. So it's been a good 30-ish years since very large biotech companies have been started. And you start to ask, why is that? Similarly, if you add up all of the biopharmaceutical industries market cap, J&J, Eli Lilly, Amgen, Genentech, et cetera, et cetera, Pfizer, all the thousands of public biopharma companies add up to roughly the top four or five tech companies in terms of market cap. But healthcare is 20% of GDP. This is insane if you think about it. Why is biotech so bad at having success? It's a long story we could get into. And that's why I'm saying, is it what do you think will happen or what do you think should happen given what we know scientifically? And if it was just based on what we know scientifically, I think we would make very fast progress. (laughs) Relatedly, during World War II, Winston Churchill wanted to treat gonorrhea and soldiers in the field. And so in a year, they rediscovered penicillin, turned it into a drug and distributed it. One year. And similarly, during COVID, we got multiple vaccines done as well as multiple drugs approved in like nine months with very few adverse events, with very few side effects, et cetera, in the populations that were tested. So why can we suddenly do things in these spurts of nine months or a year? And why isn't the norm closer to that in our current situation? There's some sense where aging isn't seen as a crisis per se. It's seen as like the normal events of the world. Sure, but many diseases are diseases of aging. You don't have to launch it as an aging drug. But why is it that outside of genetically induced cancers, roughly everybody gets colon cancer in the same age range? Roughly everybody who gets breast cancer gets it within a certain age range, et cetera. It's because to some extent, these are diseases of aging. Heart attack, same thing. Aging is obviously a driver for many types of disease. It's actually interesting. If you removed cardiovascular disease and cancer, it only buys you another, I can't remember the exact number, five or seven years of life on average. 
even if you were to get rid of the two biggest killers, you still have all this other stuff that accumulates over time. You could also put it aside and say, well, I care less about lifespan, although I think that's important, and I only care about health span, and I just want people to be healthy until they're 80, and then they can drop dead or whatever. Even that would be hugely useful for people. And again, I think there's lots of data on things we can do there. We're just not doing very much there. So there's all sorts of issues that underlie it. Are you interested in some of these more detection systems? Maybe they're a little bit more low-tech, whether it's the Grail test or maybe some full-body MRI or some other type of thing that can at least help us understand what's going on a little bit better? I think those things are interesting. Fundamentally, it's shocking that you get more data out of your car going to a mechanic that when a doctor sees you. You go to a mechanic now and you plug the data port into a machine and it downloads, I don't know how much data, gigs of data. And then the doctor has you come in and they hit you on the knee and your leg moves. Okay, you seem fine. What is that? That's ridiculous. 14th century technology. Could you cough for me now while I listen with this thing that was invented 100 years ago? Even the blood test, you get this blood test and it may have 200 markers in there, which for someone like me is very, very difficult to understand. Often the doctor has to help you walk through it and different doctors may have different markers that they care about. I don't know if there's an easy way I could just upload that PDF or that document into some other analysis system that could track it over time and give me a sense of types of things I should be doing and maybe mirror it to my diet, et cetera. It seems like there's a ton of stuff that can be done. And so the real question is, when will that stuff actually happen and what's blocking it and all the rest of it? And I actually think this is a place where maybe the rise of AI gives an excuse for all sorts of other things to happen that have kind of been held back. There's actually a really interesting project that was done at the Weizmann in Israel where they looked at different people and their diets, and basically they put people on these continuous glucose monitors. This is a couple of years ago. And they found that different people would cluster in terms of the things that would spike blood sugar. And it was a reasonably consistent pattern. Some people, if you eat rice, you have a big blood spike, but if you eat ice cream, you don't, or whatever it is. And so the people who spiked on rice and strawberries and pretzels or whatever were different from the people who spiked on ice cream and peanut butter or apples or whatever it is. There's all sorts of stuff that we could be doing either from a dietary perspective or otherwise that I think could really have a good positive impact on us. But we're kind of flying blind because it's not a very data-driven profession. Now, if people did live longer and healthier, how do you think that would change society? What do you think some of the second and third order effects to society would be? It depends on the degree of life extension. If it's 10 years, it doesn't matter. Or it matters, you're more productive, whatever, but it doesn't necessarily fundamentally change everything. If it's 100 years extra or 500 years extra, that's radical because there's the old Kuhnian paradigm of scientific change, which basically says the old guard needs to get out of the way in order for society to progress or science to progress. And basically, that usually means death. Science advances one future at a time. Exactly. Imagine if Stalin was still in power because he never died or Chavez or I can go through the list. Imagine if Buffett could just compound for another 100 years. You end up locking in power structures pretty dramatically in today's world. Or the Supreme Court, it's a lifetime appointment. Imagine if our justices were from the 1800s still. That's really interesting to think about. That's one aspect of it. That shifts pretty dramatically. You have to think about renewal societally. And actually, it's interesting because if you look at, for example, the early biomedical institutions, they used to be very nimble and dynamic. And I think in part it's because they had young, effectively founders running them. The original director of the NIH was 27 when appointed, and the current one was appointed at the age of 70. Or NIAID, 
Fauci is 82 or whatever, and the original person on it was like 37. You can see what gerontocracy does. Every year, the average age of the grants are getting older as well. Yeah, the average age keeps going up. The Senate, the average age is quite advanced relative to historical. Or presidency nowadays. In general, one could argue that turnover and renewal tends to be good for society. And if you had populations that lived for hundreds of years, you'd have to figure out that renewal part. But B, people would have more of an opportunity to renew themselves as well. It may even be self-reinforcing because if you live for 200 years instead of 80 years, the way you think about your whole life shifts. Maybe you have kids in different cohorts over time. Your career probably changes multiple times. So you have to be more nimble and adaptive. Maybe you go to school, you go through some life cycle, and then you go and have kids again, or you take another degree, or you change your job, or you have this very dynamic life, but then you also have a very long-term perspective on the world. You suddenly care about climate in a different way, maybe, or maybe you care about some other aspects of your life or policy. Also, marriage is interesting. To death do we part. One thing to be married for 50 years, but 150 years seems like a really long time. Depends on your spouse, I guess, but all these things are big shifts. And even your relationship with your children, if you're 120 and your kids are 100, your relationship with them is probably very different. That they're true peer at that point. So all these things shift in really dramatic ways societally that haven't been explored. You've invested in Anderol, and I know you've talked a lot about how there haven't been major challengers to the big defense incumbents, the Raytheons, the Boeings, Northrop Grumman, et cetera. What's stopping more innovative companies from getting into, let's say, the defense and intelligence high side space? In defense, there's traditionally been four or five reasons that it's been harder for startups to become true giant companies. Number one is there often has not been a clear why now statement. There's now why now statements around drones. AI and cyber. So there's room for new startups to actually emerge and win business because there's a technology shift that the incumbents aren't very good at. The second thing is that you usually, it takes a very long time to get something known as a programmer record. So often you see startups build and get a proof of concept trial or something else. And often these are big contracts, $10 million or whatever. But to get into the hundreds of millions of dollars, you need to land these major deals. And usually to land these major deals, you need multiple products. You need to be able to sell a bundle versus a point product. Otherwise, you get bundled by somebody else. And most startups don't build a broad product suite up front. And Anderil did that immediately. You need capital so you can last long enough because it's a deal risk in terms of hitting one of these programs a record. And many of the backers of Anderil are able to keep investing over time and support the company. And then you need some connectivity into the government. And you have an ex-Palantir team who had good foreknowledge of how do you sell to the government. All those things had to come together for Anduril to be successful. There's still a lot of room for a cyber-specific company, which would be probably software-only. There's probably a very large cyber company to build as well, but I haven't quite seen it yet. One of the things with Anduril is, and SpaceX or something is that they had these famous stars that are their CEOs that lots of people want to meet. Palmer Lucky, or you have Elon Musk at the time, and they can cut through the incumbent boxing you out and they can cut through some of the noise. It's sexy to meet somebody like Palmer Elon, but most average entrepreneurs don't have that. This may be the first time they've done it. They haven't sold a company for over a billion dollars yet. They're just working on a really good product. How would you advise some of those guys to cut through it? So Anderil had multiple co-founders. The CEO is Brian Schimpf, and then Palmer is the CTO and co-founder. The star power definitely helps, but the flip side of it is just understanding how government works. What do they want to buy? building something that's differentiated. 
understanding that you have to engage really deeply and build against existing needs because you almost have a bespoke customer for each branch. It's just understanding that sales cycle really deeply and understanding buying behavior. And that would immediately lead you to saying, okay, I need to build a broad-based bundle. And I need to build against very specific types of requirements, but also I need to build something that the incumbents can't necessarily do. Anduril has also been really smart about its model in terms of not being cost plus. So in the defense industry, often people will charge 5 or 8% on top of cost, and that's their margin. What that means, though, is that they charge everything. The employee hours on the project, they have a really strong incentive to inflate price and keep things going as long as possible, because that's where their margin comes from. And that's why you have a $100 screw. Instead of buying a screw for 10 cents, it's because you get five bucks for the screw in terms of margin. And Anduril's margin is a more traditional hardware software margin business which means it's just a fundamentally different business model. And if you sell something for 100K and get 50K margin instead of selling it for a million and generating 50K margin, it's a better thing for the DOD. It's a better thing for the country. And it's also a really good business model for Android. So that really matters too. You've been writing a lot about AI. How do you see the balance of power shifting between the startups and the incumbents in the AI space? AI is the biggest shift that's happened in a really long time. I've lived in one form or another through a few shifts, the internet, mobile, cloud, et cetera. And this is at least at that same level of magnitude. Crypto was a shift on the financial services side and perhaps identity side. This is the big platform change in some sense in terms of how we think about software and what it does and how it works and how we interact with it. I really feel we're in the second wave of AI in some sense. Really, there's been multiple waves throughout time. We had expert systems in the 70s and all this stuff. The first modern wave was probably kicked off somewhere around, I don't know, 2012 or something with AlexNet. And we had all the deep learning stuff emerge and CNNs and RNNs and GANs. And then I feel the value of those waves all went to roughly incumbents. It was the Netflix recommendation engine and the Facebook newsfeed. And startups really didn't do well off of that wave at all. I can't think of a single startup that got really big. And then in 2015, we had diffusion models invented, which is a basis for a lot of the image gen stuff we're seeing now. It's like a statistical physics model. And then In 2017, we had Transformers invented at Google. And those are really the two big shifts in terms of architectures for AI that is driving all the innovation right now. And for the first time, we're seeing a moment in time where startups can really get a big chunk of the value. Most of it will still go to incumbents, but I think a really big piece will go to startups. It's a really exciting period of time. Partially because if you get too popular, the costs start to ratchet up pretty fast on the AI side because you have these huge compute costs that are somewhat fixed? It depends on which part of it you're talking about. If it's the training side, I would really differentiate between image gen stuff on the diffusion models, which are really cheap to train. It's 500K to a few million dollars versus transformers. The most cutting as transformers are probably 50 to 100 million dollars to train right now. And that will probably only go up with time. So you definitely have defensibility on the model side in terms of eventually there'll be a capital moat there probably. Costs are dropping fast enough that a generation or two older will be really cheap to do. A lot of that will move to open source or companies that are going to be providing subscale models. And subscale may still mean it's the equivalent of GPT-4. It's just two years later. Most of the semiconductor market are semiconductors that were invented in the 80s, but they're still really valuable. They might cost a cent or a few cents, but you have so many of these semiconductors in your car or whatever it might be. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be very similar to that dynamic. And then from an incumbency perspective, it really feels things may eventually collapse down into some combination of OpenAI, Microsoft, Google, Anthropic seems to have strong models. And then there's some companies that are building their own models, but for more bespoke purposes like character. I kind of wonder 
What does Amazon do? What are some of the other players, Facebook do, et cetera? Do they build their own models? Do they partner? Does one of them just back open source really aggressively? If you go back to the 90s, Linux was mainly just funded by IBM as a counterweight to Microsoft. And most big open source projects traditionally have had a big corporate sponsor. One unanswered question is, who is that corporate sponsor for open source in the AI world? And it could be Amazon, it could be NVIDIA, it could be Facebook, it could be Oracle. You have to ask who has an incentive and who has a lot of cash. Maybe it's Apple. And how do you think Apple plays with all this? Apple has never been the strongest company at ML or AI. Part of that is privacy. Part of that is just it's never been their core focus or competency. And they've already done some interesting things in terms of embedding stable diffusion on devices. What could imagine a world where maybe they fund open source so that eventually it's just the software that they integrate into their devices? There's multiple players that could fund open source at scale. And the question is, do their incentives align enough for them to do that? And if so, I think we'll see that emerge over the coming years. There's also some regulatory barriers for basically capturing value at AI. How do you see those regulatory frameworks evolving over time? What would be an example of that? Well, there's the privacy side of things. So it's difficult to potentially do. There may be different other regulations where to share things. Sometimes you may have to share things across companies, but you're not allowed to do that because there could be seen as collusion or maybe you have to put something in some other place or if you want to attack Google or Microsoft or something. A lot of that stuff will really be navigable. Fundamentally, the fact that a lot of the advancements in AI have not been driven by the really big tech companies means that the big tech companies cannot follow aggressively because it's very easy for them to argue, hey, we didn't start this and it's a competitive market and so we have to compete. It's giving them permission now to go after some of these areas where before they were hesitant perhaps to launch products. And part of that probably was just internal bureaucratic processes that just block everything. Because some of these companies just aren't shipping effectively anymore, in part due to employee bloat or other reasons, part due to regulatory scrutiny. Some of these players hopefully will become more nimble over time. And I could imagine, for example, Facebook being very nimble on this simply because Zuckerberg is still running the company. And it sounds like he's already starting to reorient around AI instead of ARBR. As an external observer, at least it seems to be that case. Now, a couple of personal questions. From the outside, you seem extraordinarily productive. I read everything you write. I love it. You're on Twitter, you're doing podcasting, you're making these incredible investments, you're deep thinking, you're meeting with all these people. Any secrets to your own productivity? Not really. I wish I had some productivity hacks for something. I try to make a list of what's important, and then I try to tick through the list. So I wish I had a deeper thing. Once a year, I try to do almost like personal offsite on like, what are my goals for the year and then the next couple of years? And then I try to align against those things. How do you avoid doing things that are not as good or doing good things? Often there's this tyranny of there's all these good opportunities and you have to avoid them if you want to do the great things. I definitely don't have the full answer to that. One of the big hard things in life is early on in your career, you get rewarded for saying yes to everything. Hey, my friend needs some advice. Can you talk to them? Yes. Hey, somebody's thinking of switching jobs. Can you talk to that person? Yes. Hey, could you help me close this Canada? I know you're not involved with my company, but can you help out? Sure, of course. And then later in life, you get rewarded for saying no because of what you just mentioned. You have not only so many opportunities, but you get a lot of inbound for things that don't matter simply because people want to inbound you versus because it's useful to them even necessarily. And so then you have to switch into a mode of saying no, where people often lose a year or two of productivity is learning that transition from default yes to default no. And then the hard part is how do you still maintain enough yes so that you're still involved with innovative new things and interesting new people and 
the creation of new important aspects of technology or whatever you're excited about. That's one of the hard transitions I've seen multiple people go through, and some people have done it really well, and some people have done it less well. One of the things I struggle with is when you're younger, you get rewarded from determining the difference between good opportunities and bad opportunities and to jump on the good ones. As you have more success, if you just keep going after the good opportunities, you're going to stay at a local maxima. And what you really want to do is try to avoid those good ones and go for the great ones, which are really rare. And often the great ones are disguised as bad ones that come in. So it's very hard to process that because it's, oh, uh, will you join my board? That's a good opportunity. It's almost certainly not going to be a great one. Or will you do this thing on the side or something? Whereas this thing that looks like it has a lot of hair, how do you look for those? It's a really hard question. Fundamentally, a lot of what I've been driven by is what do I think are interesting technology or where do I think interesting people are doing things? So at least you're going to learn a lot of something interesting. I'll give you an example. I think I got onto the generative AI wave reasonably early. I started exploring it maybe 24 months ago or something. So I ended up investing in a lot of really early things, character and perplexity and Harvey and a variety of other companies that I think are really exciting now. Part of that was because I'd been doing AI stuff for a long time, but part of it was four or five years ago, maybe longer than that now, I got really into the GAN-based art. And I just started doing a deep dive on it because I thought it was really cool. You can generate art with AI learning off of things and all this stuff. And, and by the way, I've seen your Twitter posts on it. You're actually really good at generating. You understand the prompts and you've gotten really good at it yourself. That's nice of you to say. I don't know if that's true, but five years ago, I was really deep in this stuff just because I thought it was neat. And I was thinking, do I start an AI art studio and work out of it? Or I thought it was super cool stuff. So then when the generative wave came, I was more predisposed to it simply because I'd already been down that rabbit hole. But before it was actually relevant to be down the rabbit hole, but I think I was down that rabbit hole because I thought the technology was really interesting. And then I thought the art output was cool. So it wasn't, what's the next thing and what's hot? It was just, oh, this is really neat. If you keep that mentality, that tends to be a pretty good driver, assuming you have reasonably good taste on what's neat. Or alternatively, if you take a people lens on it, where are just really smart people building? And usually there's something there. Not always. There was ed tech waves and there was IoT waves and things that weren't that interesting in hindsight. Or they were interesting, but in different ways. That's a big part of it. The last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? In general, people's assessment of risk is wrong. And I mean that at every level of society. And that means everything from, should we use nuclear, which actually turns out to be an extremely low risk, low impact technology if you look at deaths from nuclear over time. Or even things like car seats. I don't know if you've read the data. At what age do car seats actually matter? There's some really good Freakonomics blog posts on that. I actually don't know that. What is the data on it? Or What would be your guess? After what age do car seats no longer matter if you look at retrospective data of actual accidents? Well, now that you're bringing it up, I would say two and a half because before I would have thought it was six or seven. Yeah, it's somewhere around two or three. I can't remember the exact number, but you could just look it up. It's been reproduced on multiple studies. And in the state of California, the age at which it's recommended keeps going up and up. I don't know what it is now. I'm making it up. It's age 11 and you're still in a booster. People look at correlation between number of car seats and whether you have kids or not. And on average, you have fewer kids if you're forced to have more car seats. And that may or may not be causative, right? There's all sorts of correlations, but it's a pain in the butt to deal with the car seats. Especially when you travel. It seems like it's roughly unnecessary after a certain age. 
And there's lots and lots of things like that in society. So one is we're really bad at cost-benefit analysis, and we're really good at safetyism and regulation in ways that don't necessarily help us. And that ties back to the pharma conversation too. It impacts drug development. It impacts all sorts of stuff. So there's a society-level version of that, and then there's an individual-level version of that. And the individual-level version of that is basically what sort of risks are you willing to take over the course of your life, career-wise or otherwise? And how do you think about risk-taking at every single moment? And are you actually making correct decisions relative to risk or perceived risk? Most people really misunderstand what risk is, and they misact on it. And it has all sorts of implications, both for them personally as well as societally. There's certainly a lot of career decisions where the downside is extremely limited and the upside is exponential. And people call those things risky. When to me, risky is like jumping out of an airplane without a parachute. That's really risky. And I would never do that. Whereas starting a company is actually, in many cases, extremely low risk. And you could quantify the downsides and they're quite limited. And you can almost argue the opposite, that there are moments in time where the risk is not doing it, but you misinterpret that. Because the older you get, the more cruft you accumulate in life. And cruft isn't necessarily a bad thing. You have kids, but there's also the bad things. Your family members get sick and you have to help with that. Or you have responsibilities. Yeah, responsibilities tend to accumulate with age. And I actually think that's one of the reasons why there are more young successful founders than older successful founders. Part of it is just raw opportunity cost. At some point, it gets too expensive to do a startup. But the other piece of it is all that other stuff accumulates and just starts eating away time. That's really misunderstood as a risk in life, is your time is going to go away. This has been amazing. Thank you, Elad Gale, for joining us on World of Das. I follow you at Elad Gale on Twitter. I subscribe to your Substack. I definitely encourage our listeners to engage with you there. Thank you. This has been awesome. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for including me. World of Das is brought to you by SafeGraph. SafeGraph is geospatial data for physical places. Check it out at safegraph.com and by Flex Capital. Flex Capital invests in data companies like those we talk about at World of Das. Check it out at flexcapital.com.